to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, For the generations to come, none of your descendants who has a defect may come near to offer the food of his God. No man who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind or lame, disfigured or deformed. No man with a crippled foot or hand, or is hunchbacked or dwarfed, or who has any eye defect, or who has festering or running sores or damaged testicles. No descendant of Aaron, the priest, who has any defect, is to come near to present the offerings made to the Lord by fire. He has a defect. He must not come near to offer the food of his God. He may eat the most holy food of his God, as well as the holy food. Yet because of his defect, he must not go near the curtain or approach the altar and so desecrate my sanctuary. I am the Lord who makes them holy. So Moses told this to Aaron and his sons and to all the Israelites. Hi, I'm Melinda, and the second reading tonight is from Luke chapter 5, verse 17 to 26, on page 1019 in the Pew Bibles. One day, as he, Jesus, was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came, carrying a paralytic on a mat, and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up onto the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, He said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them and took home, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you speak to us in your word and we pray now that you'd refresh our view of you, that you might help us to see Jesus clearly and to know him and to put our faith in him and to go home with joy. Amen. Hi, I'm Roger. Lovely to meet you. Uh, Don't bother getting to know me too much. 
I won't be here after this week. It's a great pleasure to uh, speak to you from God's Word tonight. Just to put things in perspective, if you're visiting tonight or if you haven't been at church for a while because you know it's January, uh, here's what's happening. The book of Luke, one of the four portraits, the Gospels of Jesus at the start of the New Testament, is a book we're getting our heads and hearts into between now and Easter. We started before Christmas because Luke is uh, one of the four Gospels that has actually good Christmas stories. Mark just starts with grown-up Jesus. John starts with Greek philosophy Jesus. Matthew and Luke actually have, you know, the Christmas story. And so we're in Luke, and over the last couple of weeks, we've seen Jesus birth him, growing up, being at the temple, my father's house, he calls it. Uh, And in this little section that we're looking at, it's one of three sections about a leper, a paralytic, and someone who is an outcast in Jewish society. If you've got a Bible, it'd be great to turn to it. Luke chapter 5, it's on page 1019. We're going to look at the, the passage that was read out uh, from the New Testament. The Old Testament we'll talk about in a minute, although it was fun hearing the word testicles in church. Um, yeah, I said it again. Uh, and so I have normally uh, in churches sometimes heard preachers with a three-point sermon. That is not my plan. Although three is a biblical number, seven is also a biblical number. <laughs> Good work, team. So uh, to set the scene, before we get to point one, which is sneaky because it's not really a point, uh, to set the scene, uh, have a look at verse 17. Jesus has been doing amazing things already. He's been healing people and the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. If you look back in chapter 4 at verse 18, 4.18, Jesus' first public sermon was when he unrolled the scroll of Isaiah and said, that stuff that God promised is about me and it's happening now. Matt described it as the trailer, the, the teaser about what Jesus' ministry is going to be like. And it's this idea of jubilee, verse 19, the year of the Lord's favour, when debts are cancelled. And as Jesus goes into his public ministry, he calls his disciples at the start of chapter 5, a remarkable scenario where Jesus walks up to people at their workplace and says, come, follow me. And they get up and go. The brevity of that recorded situation is part of Luke's account. Remember back in Luke chapter 1, he said, the reason I've written this gospel, this letter, is so that you may be certain of what you've heard about Jesus. That's why it's good for us to read it. Whether you're a person who has known and trusted Jesus for a long time, whether you've known him for a little while, or whether you're investigating, Luke has written what he calls an orderly account. So he's put stuff in an order that makes sense so that you'll know the certainty of what you've heard. So as we go through this, we want you to analyse who you think Jesus is. Can he be trusted? Is he the person that he says he is? So here's the problem, verse 18. Jesus is present with these people in a house and he has power to heal the sick. Some people come carrying a paralytic on a mat and try to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they couldn't find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. And I prepared a demonstration of that. No, I haven't, actually. Uh, The houses in Jesus' time will be different to this, not massive Gothic flying buttresses. I just like saying flying buttresses. don't really know what they are. Um, 
but the house would have had a flat roof. And so this guy, the paralytic, his mates brought him to be healed and they dug through the roof. And if you'd been sitting there, there'll be like dust on your head. And you're like, what are you idiots doing? And then a stretcher comes down, there's people going to get hit on the head. And there's the paralytic in front of Jesus. But here's the problem. It's not just that there's no room at the inn, but the paralytic, by definition, is not welcome. He's an outcast. He is defective in the eyes of religious Israel. That passage that we read from Leviticus is just an example of a whole bunch of categories of people who were not welcome to approach God. The paralytic does not have a full religious life. He's able to eat the sacrifices at the temple, which are part of having his sin forgiven, but he can't approach God. Just like the leper before him and the tax collector in the episode after, these people are outliers, people who aren't welcome, and yet Jesus welcomes them. He flips the expectation on its head. It's not just that these people have something wrong with them that makes them unholy, although that's certainly the case. It's that God has said, you can't come near me unless you are perfect. That's been the case from the very beginning when God revealed himself to his people, Israel. He said, this is how you've got to approach me. You've got to do it right or you're going to die. Cheery words, right? But that's the story. Now, you could ask yourself at this point, what's the moral of the story? Well, is Jesus never too busy for people? That's certainly true. Is it that you should bring your friends to Jesus, even if it means dragging them to church on a stretcher? Don't think that's the point of the story, although, you know, don't let me stop you bringing your friends to church. The point of this little part of the story is to think about who the paralytic represents. By nature, this is a person who cannot walk, who is completely dependent and who is unwelcome as part of Israel's religious life. He is entirely helpless. He has not one word to say for himself on the last day, except help. Friends, you and I, when we read any story, we like to put ourselves in it and we like to be the hero. In this story, I like to be one of the friends who brings the guy to Jesus. I'm like, yes, that's who we want to be. But when you read this story as part of the biblical big picture, I am the paralytic. I am the guy who comes before God with nothing, not deserving to come into his presence. When you read this story, you're meant to see yourself as the paralytic. Because me, you, them, everybody, no one brings anything before God that we can say, God, because I've done this, you should accept me. We live in a world that the Bible says God made. If you don't believe that, then what the Bible calls sin is just not being very nice to each other. Uh, I used to be a primary school teacher and so I've seen a lot of evidence of people not being very nice to each other. Uh, If you've ever been in a playground, you too will have experienced that. Uh, Being not kind to each other, treating other people badly, that is sin. But on one level it's just not being nice. What is the difference between not doing the right thing and calling it sin, 
is when we bring God into the picture. See, when I treat you badly, that doesn't work out so well for you. What's problematic with that from God's point of view is that he made you. And so when I wrong you, I don't just disappoint you and make you feel frustrated, but I've wronged someone that God made. And that's what changes just being bad into something where God is wronged. We'll talk more about this in a minute. The two words that Jesus has for the paralytic are these, in verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Firstly, friend. This guy is someone that Jesus hasn't met, and yet he says to him, friend. This is the heart of what Jesus does. He takes the one who is oppressed, the one who is an outlier, and he says, I made you, and I welcome you. If at any point, Christians, people who believe in Jesus, have made you feel as though you are not welcome in God's kingdom, I'm sorry about that. Because Jesus says to you, friend. When you come to him, Jesus says, friend. When you teach kids about knowing God, one of the things you say is, you can be friends with God. It seems a bit cheesy and a bit trite, not necessarily deep and replete with wisdom, but it's true. You can be friends with God because Jesus initiates peacemaking. Friend, he says, and the second word is this, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you've been watching the scene, if the mat had come down, what you expect to hear is, friend, you're healed. Everyone goes, "Woo! Jesus is awesome. But he doesn't say that. He says, friend, your sins are forgiven. And this is to point to the reality that what this guy needs most of all is not, in fact, to be able to walk, but to have his relationship with God restored. That's what being a paralytic is before God. My greatest need before God is to have my sin forgiven. Because I'm going to face God one day, and the word that I hear from God will either be friend or foe. God will say, welcome home, child. Or he will say, you have lived in my world and treated me like I did not exist or matter. Jesus says to the paralytic, who offers nothing to God, friend, your sins are forgiven. And at this, there's an outrage. Verse 21, have a look. There's a question. The question is essentially, who do you think you are? You upstart from nowhere, Jesus. Have a look at verse 21. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Uh, Christian dictionary time, blasphemy means claiming to be God when you're not God. Blasphemy. Well done. Learned a word tonight. Uh, The question is, who can forgive sins? Or who do you think you are? Remember, as part of Luke's gospel, Luke's trying to teach you the certainty of what you've been taught about Jesus. Jesus claims to be able to forgive people's sins. He claims to be God. And at this point, it's right to ask, well... Do you have any evidence that you are, in fact, able to forgive sins? Are you actually God? From the beginning of Luke's story, Jesus, the name, was given to him because, in the words of the angel to Mary, he will save his people from their sins. It's not really new information in Luke, but it is tempting to think sometimes that Jesus came simply to heal people. 
simply to welcome the stranger, simply to bring social restoration or just physical healing. Jesus does all those things. But the most acute need for people, the thing that begins those other branches of restoration and renewal is being brought back into relationship by the forgiveness of sins. Jesus claims to be God, and this is something that only God can do. On one hand, it's not a very big deal for Jesus. He just says, friend, your sins are forgiven. It's not a David Copperfield moment, although there is a thing that gets lowered through the roof. It's not a large build-up with smoke and a band and impressive, you know, emotionally. It's just Jesus saying, friend, your sins are forgiven. Only people with great power, with great power, can use short phrases to large effect. Jesus is one of those people. So their question is, who do you think you are? Can you forgive sins? But Jesus' question is to the heart, verse 22. Hey, look, we're at point four already, winning. Verse 22, Jesus has a question for them. And his question is, which one of these things is easier to say? Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? In verse 22 he says, by the way, just a little reminder, Jesus knows what is going on in your heart, in your head and your heart. It's why when we pray prayers of confession, we say we're sorry for the things that we've done and failed to do and for the things that we've thought and that we should have thought. Jesus knows your heart, your thought life and still wants to call you friend. This is a relief to me. Jesus' question is verse 23. What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. I'm going to give you five seconds now. You can think by yourself or talk to your neighbour. Which one of those do you think is actually easier to say? Go. One, two, three, four, five. All right. Who thinks your sins are forgiven easier to say? Who thinks get up your mat and walk is easier to say? Sins are forgiven, get up and walk. Okay, good. Well done. Thanks for those who participated. That was fun. Uh, But it's not a democracy. Uh, The answer is, the easiest one to say is, your sins are forgiven. Because you don't have to prove anything. You just say, your sins are forgiven. Everyone goes, okay. (laughs) I don't feel any different, but whatever you say, Jesus, there's no proof required. What Jesus is saying is, if I say, get up and walk, then I kind of have to put my money where my mouth is. The easy thing to say is, friend, your sins are forgiven. And so the demonstration in verse 24 shows that Jesus has the power to do the thing which is easy to say but hard to do. To demonstrate that he can forgive sins, Jesus is going to make this guy get up and walk. If we just had the action of Jesus saying, get up, take your mat and go home, we would be playing a game of charades where we had to kind of guess what Jesus meant by that. You've played charades, you're trying to convince someone else by your actions what something means. It's such a relief for people who are looking at Jesus that he explains what he's doing. It's a kindness on his part that we're not left in playing a game of charades where Jesus heals someone and you're meant to think, Does Jesus just love healing people? Is he against sickness? Those things are true. 
What's the point of this? Jesus actually says, the point of this is so that you may know. See there at the start of verse 24? So that you may know that the Son of Man, Jesus, God, has authority on earth to forgive sins. I tell you, and you can imagine this with finger actions, right? Get up, get your stuff, and go home. It's not maybe Jesus' most pastoral moment. Maybe it was said more sensitively, and Luke just records it in brief. But I love that Jesus just says, get up, take your mat, and go home. Verse 25, and we're up to point six here, is the result. There are two results of what Jesus does here. There's one for the man and one for the crowd. The man himself, unsurprisingly, does exactly what Jesus said. In this response, the paralytic is a model of faith. Now, he doesn't demonstrate his faith in any particularly spiritual way. What he does is, he does what Jesus says. That's what faith is. It's putting your life in the hands of Jesus and doing what he says. When Jesus says, you need your sins forgiven, follow me, you go, okay, Jesus, please forgive me, I'll follow you. This guy, his demonstration of faith is that he does what Jesus says. You can imagine if you'd been paralysed, lying on a mat, and someone said to you, get up, there will be a temptation not to even bother trying, right? On one level, if Jesus says this to a paralytic, he's just cruel. (laughs) Hey, paralysed guy, get up, take him out and go home. If Jesus doesn't have power, This is a moment of cruelty and taunting. The same way that people laughed at Jesus when at Lazarus' tomb, he says, don't worry, he's only sleeping. Lazarus, come out. People are like, you can't say that to a dead guy. But Jesus has authority. And to demonstrate it, he says to this guy, get up, get your stuff and go home. The individual response to having your sin forgiven is to do what Jesus says. To start the new life that you're called into where Jesus tells you what to do. That's one of the ways that you can describe being a Christian. It's maybe not our best marketing ploy. Become a Christian. Do what Jesus tells you to do. Although it's true and it's good for you. Which you learn after a while. That Jesus' ways actually works out well for you, me, them, everybody. This guy has been lying on his mat and he gets up and he's told to go home. Did you notice the last two words of verse 25? He doesn't just get up, up, pick up his mat and go home. He gets up, picks up his mat and goes home praising God. If you've been a Christian for a while, my guess is there's been times when you've lost that memory, that sense of how great it is to have your sin forgiven. If you've been a Christian only for a little while, you may have forgotten that as well. And if you've never put your trust in Jesus, let me tell you, having your sin forgiven, knowing that God looks at you and sees the perfection of Jesus, there's nothing better. There's joys in the world, right? People who aren't Christians have deep joy. There's no disagreeing with that. Beautiful days, friendship, food, the warmth of community. Those things are experienced by everyone who's alive when they get them. 
but there's something about being fully known and accepted by the God who made you that is a deeper joy than anything else you can experience. And friends, if you've forgotten how good it is that you were once an enemy and God has called you a friend and said your sins are forgiven, just look at Jesus on the cross for you. Your sin is forgiven. And as Jesus has busted through death, he's going to take us with him. And there is a deep joy of this new life that we have in Jesus. Friend, your sin is forgiven. Go home with joy. That's your job, just not tonight, but every day. To be heading to the place which Christians call home, our place in heaven with God, to be heading home with joy. Because we know. We know how this story ends. You and me, anyone who trusts in Christ, will be together in heaven with God. It's why we can hang loosely to the things of this world. Because we have a joy that cannot be superseded. It's why Christians in Aleppo don't despair to death. That's why when you're, when you're taunted at work for being a Christian, and let's face it, if you admit to being a Christian, people are going to think you're an idiot, right? You put your head up above the parapet at work and say, yeah, actually, I don't want to lie about this because I follow Jesus and I think it's better not to. People go, are you serious? Jesus? You're a fool. That's no surprise to us. We live in a world that thinks that Jesus is stupid, that you don't get your best life by following him. But we have a deep joy and a home that lets us walk through the world as Jesus did. Even when it means walking to the cross through suffering, we know how the story ends. And so there's a deep joy for Christians, even in the midst of challenges. It's a sort of joy that means you can give up the things of this world knowing what is to come. It's a sort of joy that means that you can even move away from Newtown to somewhere else and give up the things that you love deeply because you have a deeper joy and a God who's shown you that fullness comes through sacrifice and suffering. The individual response to forgiveness is to go home with joy. And the corporate response is there in verse 26. The result for them is that, well, it's a bit like a fairy tale, don't you think? It's like the last line in a fairy tale. Verse 26, everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. I, in my head when I read this, I have that Rowan Atkinson sketch where he's teasing Jesus. And behold, he showed them a carrot, for it was orange, with a green top. Random. Uh, there's this kind of beautiful moment where the crowd loves Jesus. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. This has happened in chapter 4 as well. When Jesus gave his first sermon, everyone was delighted. And then he said to them, guys, you don't really believe this. And then they took him up to the top of a cliff and tried to throw him off. All through Luke's gospel, we're going to see this up and down of Jesus being accepted and rejected. People being delighted with Jesus until they understand what following him means. And then they'll either jump on board or try and kill him. But at this moment, there is a communal delight in Jesus. A corporate response to Jesus of praise and awe and affection. 
And even though we know the cross is round the corner, there's just a moment to say, this is, what we, this is who we are. We are the people who look at Jesus and go, that is magnificent. We are amazed at Jesus for what he does. Not just that he heals a paralytic or reaches out and touches a leper when he was an outcast. Not just that he calls tax accountants like Levi. But that Jesus would call those who are his enemies friends. And that would he, he would forgive their sin. We've already tasted tonight that forgiveness. As you ate and drank, you remembered that God has given himself for you. And our response is meant to be one of praise and awe and amazement. That's why those Christian songs have those questions in them. How can it be that God would do this for me? How can it be? It's the song of amazement. Sometimes you don't sing it with that much amazement, but that's, it's meant to be, you know, voice up, eyebrows up. How can it be? How can it be that God would love you and forgive you? It's because he's a God who loves to forgive. All right, and as I walk out of here tonight, I want to say my greatest joy in my time at church here has been week by week to say, know the Lord Jesus. Know the Lord Jesus. Know that you can call him friend, have your sins forgiven, and you can go home with joy. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you again for giving us your word uh, through which we can have life. Thank you that your word points us to your son, the Lord Jesus, and we thank you for his willingness to reach out to those who are the oppressed, who are the outsiders, to those who by nature are not welcome. And we thank you that Jesus brings us near and forgives our sin. Help us, Lord, to put our trust in you, to take up this offer of being forgiven. Uh, Help us to take what you've given us and to go home with joy. Fill our hearts, we pray, with delight in being known by you and forgiven and given this great hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.